This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comics show. I am Matthew Rushing and with me tonight as he is always is Dan Gunther. Dan, why why are you standing there with with a phaser in your hand and I feel like maybe the Federation's on one side and the Roman what's going on in that room? Well, I got to tell you, some of our fundamental principles are being threatened here. So uh, I'm going to uh, stage a little insurrection. Not quite a revolution, but we'll see where it goes. Oh, goodness. Uh, Need any help? I mean, uh, I guess I could be where you are. I don't know. How far is uh, where you are in (laughs) Canada from, from Seattle? Well... Actually, I might be better served if you head off to the Federation Council and uh, try and talk them into uh, giving us a little help here. Okay, I'll do that. I'm closer to San Francisco anyway. Uh, Good. Well, I'm glad we got that sorted. Uh, We're going to be talking tonight about uh, Fade In in our uh, great feature segment with Larry Nemechek and Daniel Pru from Earl Grey. But before we do that, we wanted to jump into just a little bit of news that we have here. And... First, we've got something really special, something, Dan, that uh, we haven't done in a while, and we're going to judge a book by its cover tonight. I sense a song coming on. Book covers, you gotta have them. Book covers, everybody loves them. Book covers. Wow, I'm I'm speechless. Yeah, oh goodness, I am too, and uh, maybe because just how scary that was, but <laughs> Crisis of Conscience, finally they released the book cover there at uh, StarTrek.com, and I I don't know, what, what did you think of the cover when you first saw it? Well, I, I love the color, it's very beautiful, um, I'm, I'm noticing kind of a trend uh, that we're not seeing a lot of what's going on in the books on the cover, you know, beautiful space shots, beautiful ship shots, not a lot given away by the cover, which may be good, may be bad, but personally, I think this one is beautiful. I love the purple. Uh, it's a very gorgeous cover. It's looking very purpley. Uh, no, I think that this is sufficiently exciting, maybe just because of the way that they kind of have this strange nebula thing right behind the planet, so I'm not sure if there's going to be something epic going on there. Uh, and the proportion of the Enterprise kind of flying away from the planet, everything about this cover 
is gorgeous, I mm-hmm. think. And, you know, cover design is one of those things they've got to be thinking about how we're going to catch somebody's eye. And, and having a cover like this, I think, definitely does that when it's, you know, sitting on a bookshelf there or you're kind of perusing, say, iBooks or something like that. It's a great cover. Absolutely. It really does grab the eye. And like I said, I love the color. I love the the sense of scale with the Enterprise kind of very small in the yeah, picture. Yeah, yeah. And that's not something we get a lot, no. especially when you see the Savage Trade cover where the Enterprise is almost too big for the the cover there. Mm-hmm. This, yeah, it looks beautiful. It has a, such an epic space quality to it, which, gosh, we're talking about Star Trek. So <laughs> that's nice <laughs> to see. Well, the other thing that they did is they released the synopsis, Dan, and, and what's this book going to be about? Well, Crisis of Consciousness by Dave Gallanter. Uh, the crew of the USS Enterprise is completing a treaty mission with the Mabas, a peaceful alien race not native to the star system they currently inhabit, as descendants of refugees from a great war long ago. Several hundred thousand Mabas once took shelter on their new world and have now been here for millennia. They do not travel the stars, but seek to explore from within. The Federation's interest is in the Mabas's great intellectual resources. Their science, while behind in some areas, excels in others, and their philosophy is in line with that of the Federation. But, just as the pact is signed, the Enterprise is attacked by an unidentified vessel. Enough force is shown to keep the alien assailants at bay, but a new danger arises. Their mysterious foes are the Kinesians, a race that used to inhabit the Mabas's chosen world thousands of years ago, and who now want to take it back. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> I, this sounds good. Yeah, it sounds very exciting. Uh, interestingly enough, kind of the same themes in, in a few ways as Star Trek Insurrection, which we'll be talking about later. Yes, yeah, that's kind of funny how that works out. Well, this one looks exciting. I'm glad we finally got a chance to see the cover. Next thing that we have in news is that James Swallow on his blog let us know that he is going to be doing another Star Trek novel, although this one is just a little bit different than what we've been getting from James recently. Yeah, uh, Matthew, this one is called The Ladder Fire, and it's set during the original five-year mission. Um it's kind of an area in which James Swallow hasn't done a lot of writing in, so it'll be interesting to see his take on that era. I'm really excited. You know, uh, having talked to James a few times, I know he loves the TOS characters, and I'm excited to see him be able to get in there and, and write them because I think he's going to do a great job. And, uh, you know, we haven't had a ton of five-year mission uh, recently, and I'm okay with that. But having it spruced in with some some writers that haven't done it in a while, that's fantastic. So I'm very excited to be able to to see what he's going to come up with with the TOS characters. Definitely. Anytime uh, some of the writers get to stretch their legs in new and different ways, that's pretty cool. Well, before we head into our feature, we just want to remind everybody about our sponsor, Audible.com, which is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from. And of course, they have new titles each week. You can choose from those uh, classics to your bestsellers, and then of course, some of the most famous Star Trek books out there. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up. Again, that's audibletrial.com, and we thank Audible for their support of Literary Treks and the network. 
Dan, when the lights went down in the theater in 1998, I, I sat there with trepidation. Uh, the local Dallas paper hadn't really liked the new Star Trek film very much, uh, but I knew that Frakes and, uh, you know, he had directed again, and I'd loved First Contact. Pillar had written it, and, and he had been involved in Star Trek for a really long time, so I trusted that I would enjoy the film like I had First Contact, and, and leaving the theater... I knew I wouldn't be returning the six times I had <laughs> with the previous film. I was disappointed. Tonight, we are going to dive into Michael Pillar's book, Fade In, about his experience of writing the script for Star Trek Insurrection. And I think we have assembled just a fantastic panel here. Uh, joining us tonight is Dr. Trek himself, <laughs> Larry Nemechek. Larry, it's, it's fantastic to have you back on Literary Treks. Well, well, thank you for doing it. It's been, I've had a, a pod drought here for the last two or three months, so I, when I saw you all talking about this, I thought this is a great time to jump in because so many people, the book is great itself and it's its own saga, but uh, what it talks about is a saga that people, more and more people are getting to know about because, uh, you know, on the surface and in a meta sense, uh, it's like you, don't, you do not understand, as you just said, what all goes on when something hits you on screen. And sometimes it's helpful to know what's going on. And this is a great way to, uh, one of the best two Star Trek ways to know what's going on or what happened. Definitely. I completely agree. And because we're going to be talking about insurrection, I knew that we couldn't do this show without representation from Earl Grey. We needed our, our TNG gurus and, well, Daniel, you're representing the, the Earl Grey family. So welcome to Literary Treks. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I am. Uh, I am representing. Unfortunately, Philip couldn't make it. He's actually the the big insurrection fan. So I'm going to try to to do my best in his absence. Though I, I don't have as 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 many warm fuzzy feelings for this film. But we're not talking about the movie. We're talking about this book. And like you guys are saying, this this book was was really eye opening to me as someone who doesn't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about or worrying about or wondering what goes on behind the scenes or how these things kind of play out. So I thought it was great. I'm excited to talk about it. Well, and that is one of the things. Uh, you know, I think of writing a film. You know, you sit down and, you know, these days, uh, you know, unless you're George Lucas, uh, you you don't sit down with a legal pad and a pencil. Uh, and he still does that if he ever is writing, which I think is pretty cool, honestly. But, you know, you sit down at the computer and you think, okay, what do I want the story to be? Strangely enough, though, with this film coming off of, of the first contact, Michael talks about in the book that their first idea was they wanted a theme for this. They, they wanted a feeling for it. First movie there we did uh, it was uh, Generations. Now we had First Contact, kind of, you know, a monster story with, with lots of action, kind of dark. Their first thought here, let's do Star Trek Four, but with the next generation crew. And I don't, I don't know. I don't understand why Trek keeps trying to Trek itself. Uh, you know, why do we have to keep going back and saying, let's do two or four? Why can't we just create a new story? Because I don't remember in three, four, five, or six them thinking, Man, you know what? We really need to do. We need to do another number two. You know, and, and except by the time we get to the next generation, they're always trying to recreate that magic that was the original series instead of kind of doing their own thing, which 
Next Generation was brilliant at. The whole series is at them doing their own thing. So, guys, what did you think about this whole idea of, well, we're going to come up with a theme first, and then we're going to, and, and a feeling for the movie, and then we'll create the story? Because that seems kind of off to me. Well, as far as going back to the movies that did well, I think it's pretty much a numbers game, right? Like, they look at the movies that did really well money-wise, and they kind of take the safer road in their mind and say, well, we want to do that again, obviously, and how do we do that? Well, we need a con, or we need a funny movie like 4 was, which is frustrating. Well, we need whales. <laughs> well it, yeah, I mean, some of the, it's the movie, but they also, everybody knows that as the years go by, by the time you get to the next generation era, it's like, what is the one movie that's so iconic? What's the one that gets parodied, you know, beyond the fandom? Even in mainstream, as, as as the Big Bang Theory geek revolution takes over, what's happening? What are people? What do people keep going back to? And the guys do you know? Hard Bennett and Nick Meyer and the and the original series movie era people, they were locked in their own you know their own trail here and their own path and who was working and not and and um, they weren't so much cognizant of being enamored of of Rathacon. I mean they they were all proud of it. But it, it did take that next group of people involved, the Berman era people, and like you said, uh, the money was a big part of it. That's easy to look at a barometer. But but um, by that time, and you, know, you had Rick and Brandon, I mean uh, Ron and Brandon involved uh, writing the first two movies. It, you know they're fans, and it takes especially Ron and um, everybody just it's, it's like, Wrath of Khan is just the fun one to do. You know the, the memes, the con me, you know and everything is in that. So. It's, it just becomes that bar. Everybody just start, started subconsciously going back to if only we could come up with something that worked as well as Khan did. But but um, just just to throw back to your generations and first contact, especially generations, they also started off as a laundry list of here's what we want to get in this movie, you know. And generations was we have to pass the baton, you know, we have to, and we're going to crash the D uh, so we can move on to another ship in the next movie. I mean. It was such a flush time for the next-gen era, which was so much bigger than, at the time, even the TV era, even the 80s was for original Trek. The, the, the TV numbers were so much bigger than the original series number, that they just assumed they'd be around for at least three or four or more movies. So, you know, they were thinking long-term there. And um, all the funky things about going from TV, we can get into that too, but going from TV to a movie and, you know, instead of having an ensemble, you have a family, I mean, you have a billing order. Which was something Michael tried to fight in Insurrection, by the way. But um, but yeah, it's it's just that after those first two attempts on Next Gen, this one, it's almost like it was hardening of the arteries. Even if you did start with a laundry list, it just <laughs> it just caught up with it, you know. Well, and and one of the things I was I was thinking, it, it just as listening to to both of you, you have first contact, which feels so organically next generation uh, it's the next generation villain the same way that Khan had been brought from the original series to the films you know the Borg are brought from the series they created the Borg it's their nemesis uh, no pun intended uh, you know and that's the thing that that Picard has the biggest beef with you know that's his con so that's what makes that movie work so well. And what I didn't understand, I guess, about Insurrection, it seems like to me my first thought would be, where would these characters be now after the aftermath of First Contact? And where are they specifically in the Star Trek storyline right now? Because we have a show running. It's called Deep Space Nine. 
and they have to be doing something in in this whole storyline. I mean, the, the Enterprise isn't just orbiting Earth, being bored. Uh, you know, Riker's not hanging out on on you know uh, Riza working on his game. Uh, you know, these these characters are, are, should be doing something in the, in that storyline. So you, I would think the first thought would be, okay, where do we take the characters next? And yet, I feel like by creating the laundry list and saying we're automatically going to create a theme instead of thinking about character first and where we're going to take them because that's what the original series films do so well I think is they kind of seem to start with the characters most of the time and where are the characters going especially two three four even five which very much picks up where those characters were and and trying to move them forward and then six where again you're very much dealing with where they have been, what they've been doing for the last, you know, 30 years of their life, their swan song. So I don't understand how you can think story, but your first thought is I'm going to hamper myself by saying the theme and the tone has to be light and airy. It needs to be Star Trek four instead of saying, where do we take these characters next and allowing that to move the, you know, uh, Pillar even talks about the idea that it, as a good writer, you should listen to your characters. The characters should dictate the story, but they never dictate the story here. Yeah, that's definitely very true. Um, some of my favorite parts in this book was were actually Pillar talking about wanting to find those character moments. And like you said, having the characters tell him where to take the story next. And like you say, I think a lot of times this script does what he feared most, which was allowing that the writer control to take over rather than allowing the characters to lead the story themselves. Or the pseudo writers. Right. (laughs) (laughs) The committee of writers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's interesting to me is that if his, his, you know, and it's talked about a little bit in the beginning, but like if that was their goal, uh, th- their goal was to do a Star Trek four. Their goal was to be light, which I mean that makes sense, right? After we get Generations and First Contact, which are both dramatic films, very heavily dramatic films, you want to do something lighter and more fun. Uh, I don't know. I can't like even reading through this book. I don't think any of these scripts fulfill that tone. They all seem kind of uh, pretty heavy and intense. And like, if if that's where you're trying to go, you you failed on every level in almost every iteration of this. And uh, but, but it's a super interesting process to go through to see, like, this is where these are initial ideas, and then it gets morphed into something else, and then something else, and then something else, and something else. And, uh, you know, it was it's eye-opening, really. Mm. Well, uh, I, uh, just as he sat down to start writing, one of our report, one of our writers, um, maybe even been Kevin Dilmore, um, in Communicator, did an interview with Michael. It's like a non-spoilery, but here's where we're coming from kind of a thing. And I found the, and I think he repeats it in here, but he basically said he wanted the, you know, after and again after um, generations, which was all about the handoff and first contact, which was Stark and you know save the Earth, one of those things. He said he wanted to. He had three goals. He wanted to get the Enterprise back in the business of exploring again, to really go to new worlds, new aliens, and go where no man's gone before. That he didn't think the franchise had done that yet. The movie, the next gen movie franchise. And he wanted to get back to the family feel of the crew and Picard's place in it, which he thought was this, you know, which is what he brought to the show when he came in in the third season, which got it out of being standalone, you know, thing of the week and and started developing the characters really, if you think about it. But it's that thing of now you've you've taken a TV show to a, a film 
and you instead of having it where okay we've got 26 shows okay we're gonna have like a couple of rikers shows and we'll have a couple of beverly's and we'll have a couple of geordie shows and we'll we'll you know they'll always be picard and and filter down from there and data will be strong probably and blah blah you know but instead of having the luxury of that you're stuck in a movie where there's a pecking order and people are all dealing with one-off contracts and it's you know starring patrick stewart and oh is jonathan frakes the second bill like he always was in the show or is it brent spiner because data is the you know and you're into that clout and pecking order and now people have they have contractual things in their contract and they can weigh in and put their two cents in and they're, they're obligated to at least listen to their notes if not take them and maybe they're even associate producer credit besides being an actor and and you know that's what got in but he started off wanting to be the family and um and he said he wanted to make Picard's he wanted to really define his identity as a big screen hero and he says he talks starting that image of Picard standing on a mountainside with a phaser rifle standing alone against the two most powerful empires in the galaxy and that was his stark image which again doesn't sound very lighthearted but you know but that's what, but you know he started but it does sound epic yeah <laughs> he's trying to make it epic <laughs> And I think he was probably very sensitive about coming from a place where he had he had gotten very successful in TV. I mean, mm. he wasn't a dummy. He was thrilled to have a chance at a feat. I mean, that's how people that's how people expand their careers. They take where they are, they grow that, and then at some point they pivot. But you use what got you there, and now you do a springboard off, and you know you may not do that again. You know, all, everybody's a lot of people started doing. TV series and they grow, you know, the current, you know, the whole, everybody at Bad Robot started in television and just as one example, you know, so um, uh, he was very aware of this would be a great opportunity for him to, to take what he came from and jump and pivot and get into big screen. And as it turned out, I think he wound up basically, again, he had another feature he was trying to sell that was a, that was a modern day spy kind of CIA NSA thriller, I forgot the name. But, you know, that didn't happen, and so he turned – after this, he went back to uh, starting uh, Pillar Squared with Sean, and they did uh, – dead, they adapted Dead Zone to TV, and he pretty much worked in TV after this until he, you know, had the, the cancer got him and he died. But uh, he was very much aware of trying to jump and had this be epic. Well, what's so interesting is that they latch on to the idea of uh, – for this lighter film of what if we go searching for the fountain of youth and – so Pillar goes, he sits down, he writes a script. This is one of the, I think the most amazing parts of the book is is getting to read these iterations of the script and seeing literally what the entire story treatment is for these different iterations. And this first one, he decides to call Stardust. Picard is going to discover a conspiracy between the Federation and the Romulans over this fountain of youth. Picard's old friend and rival Duffy, who's kind of become a, a bit of a renegade as they've parted ways after uh, the Academy, has been the one that's been attacking these Romulan ships that Picard and the crew of the Enterprise have been sent to check out. Uh, he's been doing this to save the indigenous species of, and this is something that stays throughout the entire run of the script, the Briar Patch. Picard turns his back on Starfleet, to help Duffy, and they succeed even though Duffy dies. Picard's speech to the council ends up saving the day uh, after he discovers, you know, and basically they we have that moment um, that Picard is standing on the, the hilltop with the phaser rifle, and, you know, you have the Federation on one side, the Romulans on the other, and, and a man with his principles, which I don't know about you, 
But not only does this sound like a fantastic Star Trek film, but what a moment for Picard. I mean, if you want to like erase the idea of Kirk, have Picard have to stand up against the Romulan Empire and the entire Federation and say, both of you are wrong and suck it because <laughs> I'm here and we're going to save the day. Like, a brilliant, brilliant script. I, what do you, wh- reading through was just so frustrating to see how brilliant this movie fit in with the whole milieu of Star Trek at the time with Deep Space Nine, the Dominion War, the Romulans really fit in here because of that. Uh, the politics make sense. Uh, they have a great explanation for Worf being there. And this whole movie really, in the same time, was about helping uh, Data and Picard grow as as well, like really fomenting and cementing those characters into who uh, you know we want them to be, especially after First Contact, where you know they've really started to come into their own. Um, golly, well, I remember uh, when this movie was first coming out, I. I heard a lot about them adapting Heart of Darkness. That was one thing that I kept hearing over and over. And this iteration of the script is the closest to that, right? And you kind of want to talk about setting the tone versus writing the story first. It's kind of weird to think that the thought process was, we want a lighter tone, we want a light script. I've got it, Heart of Darkness. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was saying. Yeah. (laughs) But... That said, Heart of Darkness, uh, I, I, I really like this first script. I like a lot of the ideas, um, and I would have liked to see them use the story to dictate the tone rather than having the idea of this tone to start with and then going with this story because I, I think that might have been one of the really early stumbling blocks personally. Well, and one of the things that this script also does, I think, so brilliantly is it respects Star Trek. Mm-hmm. It respects the canon. It respects the viewer um, by by making you know Star Trek. I mean, we're we're making a Star Trek movie. You know, you don't go to any other movie in any other genre and not expect people to have some familiarity with it. Um, you know, well, he he was even going to, and yeah. It's like it's like you said. The first iteration was the freshest, and before anybody jumps on, oh, this is it's it's amazing how one of the criticisms of Insurrection, once it's finally, you know, run through the sausage factory, is that oh, it just feels like a big two-part show with bigger budget. But you go back, and there were all these cute little I don't want to say fan service things because they do. It's it's even more basic than again. He started off with Romulans, and that got at the time. At the time, you know, late, late uh, DS9, just the same reason the DS, the Romulans were not big in the Dominion War and they were barely used was because there was this feeling, not everybody shared it, but a feeling among people running Star Trek that the Romulans were quote-unquote boring. Of all the Star Trek races, alien, you know, adversaries, they were the boring ones. They were just the dark Vulcans and, you know, and, and the Cardassians are more interesting now and whatever. And it's it's so ironic that, and I and I was able to talk to Michael about this later on, by the time before he died, but by the time, you know, not only Nemesis, which was still Berman era, but then the JJ movie, <laughs> the main, the main adversary start off being a ground in Romulans. And if Michael had been allowed to stay with that, he wouldn't have had to go down the road of having to invent and rapidly develop these, these, uh, you know, alternate adversaries that are supposed to be big that we've never heard of before. But, but even more than using Romulans, it goes back to the first draft of Stardust. 
you, you they try to ground how great Duffy and Picard were as cadets and how this split happened to set up the drama by saying that their split was the thing that Boothby talked about back in the first duty and tried to retcon that in. So you can say, well, that's a little fanboy service, but for a fan, it would have passed by mainstream audience. For a fan, that would have been a, just one of many things they had in there that would have really grounded this. you know. And anyway, you're right. It's like the further they got away from... Uh, the further they got away from these uh, early drafts, even the, the Trek references just get shallower and shallower. But. Well, and let's not forget, Data got groupies. <laughs> I mean, so I don't know how Brent let that go, but goodness. You know, I will I will say, I just, I don't understand. Like, the Romulans are my favorite. Man, I just love the Romulans. I don't know how anybody can find them boring. But anyways. It's it's Sela, it's, right? Daniel? Except, no, except my, <laughs> she doesn't count. Okay, anyways. Um, but, um, uh, you know, well, one thing about this, especially this original script, uh, I got like a really weird, like, Hagrid vibe off of Boothby, which was like really, because he was like the, <laughs> the groundskeeper, and he had this hut, and he was kind of magical. He just showed up and fixed things and stuff uh it was it was an interesting thing though um i was a little concerned and i know this is just me being a a tng fan but i was like so how are they gonna fit the events of like tapestry into this like are they gonna like at all fit it into the canon or they just get which you know if it's a movie you can kind of let some of that stuff go um especially for this early script but uh, you mean you mean the real parts of tapestry or the fanciful? Well, part? I like, guess we don't. Really, yeah, that's true. I guess that's true. But <laughs> uh, but you know those characters because those characters were supposed to be friends the whole time too. Oh, and also uh, the every time he said Duffy, all I could think was Commander McDuff from uh, from Conundrum, the guy who just shows up on the bridge. But again, that's just TNG stuff. But. Yeah. Well, I, Duffy was named for one of the assistants on the show that uh, was gay, this is the 90s, and he died of AIDS. And I know that's what he would have named Duffy for. But anyway, just to t- that was where my, every time I hear Duffy, that's where my head goes, but that's me. Well, and then what I love, too, about this script is, is that the genius of, okay, why is Worf going to be in this film? And mm-hmm. obviously, Insurrection, we trail off. We get bored with that. <laughs> Worf's on the film because he's it's a TNG film. But they actually explain that Worf, you know, because of what happened to his parents, uh, because of his kind of obvious dislike for Romulans, he's become kind of a Romulan expert, uh, you know. And what I really liked was that explanation. Have we ever heard that before in Star Trek? No. Who cares? (laughs) It makes sense, though, with the canon and what we know of what happened to Worf's family. Um, and the even the the Romulan villain that they create here, uh, I think, uh, is 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 really fantastic and and ven- really maniacal and creepy and you know all that they do in this script I think really services Star Trek and creates a, a fully rounded Star Trek film and and Daniel you said you know this is a first uh, run so there would be some things that still do need to be refined you know it's it's obviously um, not perfect, and and there's a there's probably some edges we could could round off and all that, but the places that they go here and um, the things that they're exploring, like the academy and Picard being there, and the kind of the they even Michael's even been able to work in kind of how the Federation is changing from this money driven society to a moneyless society, 
from you know Kirk's time to Picard's time and and how the Federation makes a, a big move and a big leap forward which I just I, again it, it's a fantastic Star Trek story and then Berman gets his hands on the script and he doesn't love it um, and they come up with the idea of okay so what if we rework it and Data is the person that Picard is going to go after and it's Data against Picard. And you know, what? we should what if- we should specify real quick that these first two or three versions, they're story documents. They're not actual yes. scripts. Right. Yes. Just for the heck of it. Yeah. Which is why they can be a little more fluid and they can change things without being too bogged down. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Which is going to be something that's so interesting because here in this this story treatment, Data ends up having to be killed by Picard because uh, of, of what happens. This is why... He's the one that goes it. up it's, river. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. fantastic. Um, because uh, he, he thinks Data is the one that's standing in the way of what's going on. And then he finds out, obviously, that the Federation is involved here and gets really angry, angrier, apparently, than we've ever seen Picard because he's killed somebody he really cared about. Uh, and Pillar even says uh, in the story treatment that he loved... Uh, and him and the crew go rogue. Um, Data ends up coming back with the help of the aliens, and and they win in the end. It's not a bad iteration either. This is actually a pretty cool script. And and these early ones, there's these. Well, I'm, this may be like the second iteration of that, but while they're still in this mode, there are these these mariners that helped. Oh, it's fantastic. Riker, yeah, a little, you know, and um, they they but they talk up. They acknowledge like Worf and Troy's past a little bit. They mm-hmm. acknowledge a little bit of Picard and Beverly. Um, Actually, I really like those Space Mariners and that connection they drew. Like, oh, the Federation has spoken. This is the Federation, the people of the Federation. I thought that was really cool. I actually, I liked this iteration of the script the best for a lot of reasons. Um, I really liked the fact that Picard blows a hole through Data's chest. Like, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. I mean, how powerful of a scene could you make that? Oh, that's can you incredible. imagine seeing that on the big screen? Oh, like, my goodness, that would be amazing. And then I love, <laughs> so one of my biggest criticisms with Insurrection is the fact that we get boring old farm people. And then in this script, we get these, like, <laughs> we get these, like, dwarf kind of, like, uh, like telepathic mute aliens that we never, they, they're physically interesting and they have neat abilities and it's, like, these are like the most alien people we've seen in a long time on Star Trek. Like, let's why don't we keep this going? This is great. I think this is a fan. I wish that's what this movie turned out to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the thing is that uh, I, Pillar is really like he's aiming for the fences with this movie. I mean, he's bringing his A-game. nice baseball metaphor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, because we all know how Pillar and and Berman love baseball. So the he really is the, right? he, and, uh, yeah, 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 they all do. Um, but it is it is a it's an amazing thing. And you know, honestly, if either of two of these scripts had gotten made, dude, I'd have seen this movie eight times in the theater because it just sounds fantastic. And then Patrick gets his hands on the script. He's giving his notes <laughs> for his contractual as lead star obligation after three movies. Yeah, he he hates it. Um, he thinks it's drab. It's boring. It doesn't have enough of a movie feel. Uh, that especially that first contact had. He said uh, he wants something that's epic that you couldn't do in the series, uh, and. 
I just want to talk about that before we kind of get how they kind of work Patrick back in and get him excited. What is Patrick not seeing here? Like I, I as a Star Trek fan, you know, I, I'm I'm jazzed by this. Um, in fact, I, I think if if Pillar had been able to give this script to Ira Stephen Bear, either one of these scripts before, you know, he would have been jazzed. We'll talk about that his reaction to some things later. But what's Patrick? I don't know. Do you really feel like that either of these iterations are boring and they don't feel movie enough, or that you could have just seen these in a two-parter on the Next Generation? Because that's obviously what everybody. You even said it, Larry. This is exactly what people criticize. It seems like an extended episode. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it, it, before we talk about this. Just everybody, just like context is everything, and we just need to remember. You know, how things happen, what things happen, what's the pendulum swinging back and forth. Patrick has come out of Next Generation. They've done a movie. He knows he's got Star Trek in his back pocket. And this is before, I think it's before the X-Men, which is more genre stuff. But he's like really focused on, you know, he did, uh, was it The Birdcage? Mm, Um, You know, he's really looking to do theater, but also when he is on a big screen to do things that really expand and make sure people know he can do more than... You know, in case you forgot that I was a Shakespearean actor and have a British accent, I can do more than play a starship captain. You know, so he's really trying to make sure his his film career gets expanded out. So he's got a comfort zone of, of sure I'll come back and take home a paycheck and be Picard. And he does care. He's he writes some he does at times have some thoughtful questions, just like Brent did. But yeah. Yeah, he's he's coming at it from where he is in his career at the moment. He's looking out for himself, which is you know what he's what he ought to be doing, and let the producers look out for themselves. But it's it, that kind of a thing. Is I'm still amazed whenever I and I have it on tape when Brandon and Ron are talking about when they sat down with Shatner to say, okay, so we're looking for the biggest movie moment ever, and we're going to kill Kirk. And he didn't throw a tantrum. He was like, okay, let's just do it well, you know. And I'm just like, wow. I mean, I just wonder ten years later, after all the Sturm and Drang about you know the bring back Kirk movement and all the stuff now and sticky men of JJ. I just wonder if that would have happened ten years later. Mm. But at the time, it was when he was—he it was, you know, pre Priceline and pre Boston Legal and everything. All his huge comeback, and I just so everything is relative, and and got to look at Patrick's reaction here is you know where he was in his own life. Well, I remember when I was reading Patrick's notes, I was kind of thinking, like, because I'd read the treatment and thought, oh, I love this story. I think it's great. And then Patrick's notes, how kind of deflating they were to um to Michael Pillar and then I kind of read through the notes and I thought he had a couple points here and there too you know it was kind of I'd read this this treatment and thought oh this is really great and then and then I could see a few of the little flaws and I didn't agree with most of his notes but there were a few points that I was like oh this guy kind of knows what he's looking for and even though he might not know exactly what he wants or how to fix it, he can see where the little kinks are that might detract from it a little bit. So I kind of had mixed feelings about these. I, I was uh, actually kind of amazed um, when I was reading that, that I guess it was a fax, right? I don't know. Is that what it was in the book? I think uh, from Patrick Stewart. And, I think uh, so. Yeah. It's, uh, now, I was going to say that the amazing thing about the whole book is that Michael has these actual documents, including memos from people. I was just, I'm right there right now. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what my mind thought before. Like, you know, it's it's easy for me to just, uh, Patrick Stewart plays Captain Picard and that's just his day job and it's fine. But it's like, it's amazing to me that like 
how much of a grasp he had, at least on the character, at least as much as I thought, you know, in mm-hmm. the, like, he makes a jab at Star Trek V when he's like, we don't want to all go, you know, singing Row, Row, Row Your Boat in this movie or something like that. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's amazing. Like, he knows what he's, he knows what's going on. And, you know, while, you know, maybe he didn't agree with every criticism he made, at least you could understand why he was making them. And I don't think it would have necessarily led to a bad script, but it just seemed to kind of push everybody in a different direction, like, completely. Like, it wasn't even like they were like, oh, we'll just take these things into consideration and then and then try to refine them. It was like, oh, we need to scrap it and then start something new. And I just don't understand why they did that. That doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-mm. Well, and it's interesting, too, because this script is the one that is the most heart of darkness. And it's it's the one that um, had lost a lot of what Pillar had wanted to do in the first place that he was doing with Stardust, which was that um, fountain of youth. It had really lost a lot of that feel to it. They had taken a lot of that stuff out. And uh, I wonder if maybe he had seen the, the Stardust treatment and not responded more towards that because there's some things in there that I thought were really great and weren't quite as, I guess, dark and and still had a very epic feel and very much like a movie and very connected to Star Trek. And that's, it is an epic email. It is an epic uh, Well, can I I just, I've got it right here. Can I I just throw out a couple of, yeah. He says, he kind of recaps and he says, uh, uh, it's Derek. In generations, Picard and the Enterprise crew fought to defeat a madman who was prepared to sacrifice planets, culture, civilizations, millions of lives to achieve a personal nirvana. In First Contact, our heroes fought to prevent the assimilation of the people of Earth, the solar system, our galaxy, and beyond. In this story I've been reading this weekend, we are enmeshed in a context of Federation politics, fine interpretations of the Prime Directive, and ancient history, as ancient as Star Trek, of conflict between two members of the Federation. In the middle of all this, there is a vaguely defined, characterless, uninteresting civilization who seemed to have attended too many performances of Siegfried and Roy. I like the scene with Picard in the manners and Picard functioning as a gorilla, but other than that, what I have read would hardly have composed a moderately interesting episode somewhere in the middle of season five at the NG. Other than this, what do I not like about it? It has no sweep. Um, it is enmeshed in detail. The backstory itself, and again, we're talking about the early version, right? The backstory itself would have put ard- even ardent fans to sleep. It deprives us of data, the data everybody wants to see. It has Picard for the third time in emotional agony. It uses the Enterprise crew in cliched in all too familiar ways. Worf defending his honor, Troy seducing a man for information. It is so on the nose with the Heart of Darkness theme and then drops it. It has no surprises, it has no scale, it has little humor, and what it has is cliched and tired. It has no romance, it is not sexy, it breaks no new ground, it underuses our cast, it has little fun, it is dull. I think what and you'll love this, guys. I think what dismays me most about the story is the dredging up of the Romulans, a race already unexcited in DNG, <laughs> as the bad guys. It is revisionist and backward-looking in a most disappointing way. After the Borg, the Romulans. Oh my! What it's so funny because I <laughs> about all that. Some of that there's there's like uh-huh. little nuggets of of truth in there. So uh, what I love here is that Patrick really does know his stuff. And so when he comes at them and he's 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 got his complaints, he comes with with great ammo. Um, he he's not just blowing smoke. He's not being an actor who hasn't really read the script. It seems like this guy has poured through this thing and and put a lot of thought into this as he's dictating this memo. What is is interesting to me though is as I feel like that they lost track of where Star Trek was. They weren't understanding, you know, where Deep Space Nine was at the time and seeing how interesting things had gotten with 
the, the Alpha Quadrant with the Romulans themselves, all of this. There's a lot in there, so I feel like if they had maybe stayed up with where Star Trek was, they might have responded a little bit better to this iteration, or maybe if they had, you know, uh, well, Patrick, we we have this earlier version you might like, you know. I, I just don't see it. I, I'm a Star Trek fan, and I love it, and I see this being one of the best Star Trek movies ever made if they do, you know, this iteration or, or an earlier one. I, it just... It, it hits all the things that I would want to see in a great Star Trek movie because it actually feels like it's rewarding me for being a fan. I can see them kind of not wanting to be corralled into having to take into account everything that's going on in Star Trek. But at the same time, yeah, the Star Trek fan in me wants to see the little touchstones of continuity of everything that's going on and bringing in the outside politics from Deep Space Nine and that sort of thing. So I can kind of see where they wouldn't want to do that so much, but I also appreciate that it would be really cool if they could or did. And just like a perfect example of that is like, when you read through this book, how late in the game they took out the, oh, by the way, Worf, we're sorry your wife just died line. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, mm-hmm. like of all things, that's the thing that's like super quick. It's not going to take any time up. Just say the line. You're going to, you're going, you're respecting the fans. And anybody else who doesn't get it is just not going to care because it's one line. Just let it go. But they just, you know, it's so frustrating to watch it and be like, okay, you. You just not you're not paying attention. Why is why aren't you people not paying? I'm not asking for a Deep Space Nine side story in this movie, but at least like like Matthew is saying, at least respect the fans that are that are paying attention. Mm-hmm. Well, and and not only that, but I think one of the things is is that you're you're losing the idea of, and I don't think this is really there yet in in that early and that late you know twentieth century is that synergy of you know you 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 should be using your film to support what you're doing on <laughs> on TV you know yeah. uh and and that's something we have now but it's not something they had then but it's it's frustrating to see that they didn't because they could have been supporting uh the end of of Deep Space 9 and obviously they don't care about Deep Space 9 so they don't really feel like it's that's... a big deal to to not be including the, the fans who, who were, like, I was watching ardently, I, I be, uh, and, and as everybody knows on the network, huge Deep Space Nine fan. Um, it's my favorite of the series. So, yeah, I would have liked to have seen those things pay off. And so I think when I came out of the film and I had that bad reaction because Worf comes on the screen and his wife has just died and nobody said anything, you know? I mean, all those kind of things you add all of it up it 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 just left me feeling cold because yeah i felt like i saw an extended tv episode and it it didn't have anything to do with the star trek that i was paying attention to at we, the time we have retconned that by the way on earl gray the reason that nobody mentions jedzia is because nobody on the enterprise was invited to the wedding okay so yeah well that makes sense yeah. you know it's just <laughs> what do you do you know no but i agree it, it bothers me that that part bothers me too well, it's you know it goes back to we're talking about this on the on the other side of the room that um, that every Star Trek movie, every generation, it's always the uh, and every TV series starting out is always okay. We need something new, but don't change anything. You know, it's this balancing act dilemma. It's it's the curse of the successful franchise kind of thing. And 
for the franchise that started, you go back to the 70s when people would not let this failed little TV show die and demanded a return, and that's what fandom was really about in the beginning, to now, how much Star Trek pioneered and invented, and you go back now and you go, well, yes, that, you know, oh, fan fiction and slash scenes and, you know, conventions and you know, media conventions and whatever it is, it's like Star Trek started it, you know, first message boards online were Star Trek. But how, when it comes down to what you're saying about supporting the rest of your franchise, and now we're watching the mega edition of this now, you know, with Marvel and, and, and Warners and you know, whoever's got what everywhere. And they're like, oh, here's our TV movies and here's our toys and here's our big, here's our A movies and here's our B movies. And, you know, and how Star Trek could have been writing the book on that in the 90s and the aughts as a, as a century dawned. And, and they weren't because they were still as big of franchises as there was. They were still kind of like, well, the DS9 guys are over here doing this and the Voyager guys are over here doing this and... And here's the movie guys, and yes, Rick is over it all, but, you know, those crazy DS9 guys are off running and doing their own thing. And, and they were, and the last season, they were so enmeshed in those serial shows, and that was such a wacky new concept, that they didn't even know how they were gonna, sometimes going to get themselves out of the knot, you know, of the writing, and things were sliding back and forth between shows. So, having Michael over here, who was still, you know, as consultant, he got every script, and he would write notes on the TV episodes... Uh, you know, some more, some less, but he was focused on doing this, and he would try to. They would try to throw, you know, bones in. I, I don't mean bones. I mean throw <laughs> bones. <laughs> <laughs> Although there was, I was page. <laughs> Wait a minute. I was looking. <laughs> was he at Starfleet Academy? What is happening? Right now? Yeah, I was running around with it. No, wait, that's the other way around. I was going to No, I was going to say there's even a, one of the. Um, the first draft script, uh, they're ta- for some reason they're talking about Marseille, and Picard just throws out a reference to Sandrines. So, oh. you know, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, the famous, awesome. famous, so, you know, there's even a little bit of, fa- you know, Voyager fan service, oh my God, in this. So, and they're way out there. It's hard to do that to, um, to keep up with that. But it's like, it's that whole attitude about the Rom. You were talking about how you love the Romulans. There has been this whole comeback. But at the time, even on DS9, I mean, I think Ron is the one that was, I think Ron and I would get into this about, really, Ron, you want to have a running Romulan general character? Really? Really? We've got all these great characters now that are human and (laughs) we've got everything else. Really? We need a Romulan? Okay. Okay. You know, so anyway, that's, it's, there's been, I don't want to say revisionist, but there's been so much. Fandom, this is what I keep, this is what's wonderful about reinvention. The week to week watching of the shows in the 90s, I mean, it's like the perception of DS9 was that it was fading the last year or two, which is kind of the reason why everybody just let Ira and Ron and the guys do what they wanted to do. It's kind of like, okay, the hot new thing is Voyager is going to be the flagship of a network, and this old, tired, syndicated model is dying, where that used to be the cool, you know, DS9 went from being the cool new kid to. They also ran at the end, and they, which was great. They let them just do what they wanted to do. But um, I mean, they're all proud of it, and they'll they won't say that now. But in the juggling of priorities, that's what was going on, and the movies would overtake all of that. But but yeah, you're, the way you're talking about, oh, I wish they'd served all these things. It's just I can totally see how this, and maybe I'm too interested in the past here, but I can totally see why it played out the way it did. And it's amazing to me to go back and read those early drafts to see how much was it, you know, mm-hmm. the Boothby and the Sandrines. And, I just but, wish we but, got that Quark cameo at the end. That, yeah. that would have been cool. <laughs> I, I think that would have been a lot of fun, but that's yeah. okay. I, I have the clip of that that I show at my thing at cons. So That's awesome. It's all of like 40 seconds, but yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So they end up showing Patrick uh, 
they end up giving Patrick the idea, okay, we had this whole idea with the Fountain of Youth, and he just goes gaga over this idea. And so Pillar goes back, and he starts rewriting the script, kind of going back to where he wanted to. Which is funny because Rick thought Patrick wouldn't like it because it would mean that he was old and had to be and needed to be youthened. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Which but shows it, where the double think comes in when they all start trying to second guess each other. But anyway. And this is this is where I think that you have to just create this story and not worry about the actors. And if you're going to bring them into the process, then you need to show them what you think is your strongest script and forget about what you think they're going to say because obviously you don't really know. Uh, and as as much as Rick knew Patrick he did not anticipate this response. And I feel like if they had shown Patrick that first story treatment with Stardust, we could have seen in a whole different movie because Stardust is very similar to this, but has much more depth. And what happens is that, is that as you said, Larry, we just start to strip away the Star Trek out of this script. And we start to get real generic very fast um, and all the things that Patrick complained about, about it being dull and boring and then the aliens being boring are exactly what happened. And like a TV start. episode. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. If Patrick had seen the version with the Victrola playing the record, you know, all these kind of wacky non Star Trek token, you know, it's not a holodeck. I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just some or- very organic, big scope offbeat kind of moments. Um, yeah, I think as an actor, he would have responded to that. Yeah. Well, and he would have had, you know, that great relationship with Duffy to play off of. He would have had somebody who does seem like a big nemesis to him in the beginning of the film and ends up becoming a, a you know, a hero in the end. You know, you have a lot of great themes going on. So, uh, but what's so funny is that. I wouldn't go to a Star Wars film and not expect to see something with Jedi or bounty hunters or any of those kind of things, but I feel like the studio and even some of the people involved were really afraid to make an actual Star Trek movie like that respected Star Trek, its canon, where it had been, where it was going, these characters, all of those things. You, you really take all of that out and it unfortunately became uh, sci-fi generica. You know, it's just, um, it's something that we have kind of seen before. We'd seen it on Star Trek before. And, uh, you know, Patrick wants to complain, I think, in that, that story treatment. But we'd actually seen this in other episodes, all these things we've seen in other episodes. Who watches the watchers? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and better uh, in that episode, by the way, what I add. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the studio response to this, uh, and this is where we really start to squeeze out the sausage. I mean, it's, we are, we're getting it through a whole nother filter at this point. Well, and you should, and we should mention real quick, uh, you know, we mentioned Ira a minute ago. Michael and Ira were very big. Ira was running, was in the middle of trying to wrap up DS9. And and the scene, as, as a book, apart from the development of the movie, but just as writing the book, it's one of the moments that's like lived with me in my memory. Because I, I can totally see both of them doing this. It's like when Michael says he let, he wanted Ira to read it, and his old buddies, he did. 
And, he, and when Michael talks about Ira walking in his office, and by this time, Michael was not in the Hart building. He was across the street in the building where the bottom floor was. There were some random offices. The bottom floor was like publicity and promotion. It's escaped me at the moment. It's the peak. It's the peak brick building that you kind of see back in the 60s when Kirk and Spock are walking along the New York Street. And it was the refer. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but Mike comes over, uh, Ira comes over to Michael's office. And when Michael writes in his narrative, he walked in, Ira took off his dark glasses, which he never does, and said, Mikey, Mikey, Mikey. It was like, that, that was just a, a great moment. But it gets across the point where Ira has to, Ira has to be the Republican senator that goes to Nixon and says, you've got to resign. You know, it's like Ira had to be the one to go, oh boy, Mike, you got some problems here. You know, and that was early on. That was early. And I just love that moment. I love that moment as a process moment and as a here's a slice of living Star Trek history in the day to day people trying to do their jobs moment. And it, it is a book that Michael is writing, you know, the meta of the process, not just, well, let's study insurrections evolution, but as the writing process and day to day life at Paramount and in the cauldron of this franchise and the pressure. I, I just love that moment. That's always that's just I don't know about you guys, but that just etched in my Yeah, that definitely stuck brain. out to me for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> it was probably one of my favorite parts of this yeah. whole storyline. Just because knowing, you know, Ira as I do through all the reading of the you know, Deep Space Nine companion, Larry hearing him on Trekland Speaker Three, uh, and all of those things with oh, those guys. Uh <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's knowing that he felt that way about the script and knowing his love for Star Trek, uh, the way that him and Ron really do feel about Star Trek. Uh, they, they love this property and they care deeply about what happens to it. And so the fact that he came with that, I, this Mike, this sucks basically. Uh, and he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to say that. He just took off his glasses and <laughs> he knows that this is, this is not where you want to be. That and the Mikey, Mikey, so the studio does get a hold of the script and it was interesting because normally we hear about the studio with later trek especially and how they kind of seem to meddle with everything and and kind of muck around and mess things up but what did you guys think about the things that they were asking for with this film a lot of the studio notes they kind of live up to the reputation of studio notes that I've heard and read in the past where, for example, they're like, oh, we want more action. We want more uh, excitement. Uh, but you're going to need a little less money, by the way. And it's just like the cognitive dissonance sometimes hurts. <laughs> yeah. Um, they they The things they're asking for, uh, they kind of lay out, we want uh, better villains, uh, we want better character moments and motivations, specifically for the characters of uh, Troy and Riker. Uh, with Worf, they really wanted to make sure that we explained why Worf was there, but also some other things that were in the script they wanted to make sure were well done. Uh, we also want to give some motivations to Beverly. They felt like she was underserved in the other two films. They wanted, yeah. Which Imagine if you think you saw that, she was better <laughs> yeah. served in First Contact. Than, uh, but yeah. the fact that the studio was actually picking up on these things I thought was pretty amazing uh, the fact that you know we have these other characters we need to be using them this can't just be the Picard and Data show we need to make sure that these other characters have some moments that keep keep us coming back 
and uh, they wanted to make sure the pace and the action were were exciting and and correct. Uh, and uh, they don't want to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, what's what's interesting to me is that all of the criticisms, well, maybe not all of them, I can't remember specifically all of them, but but at least most of the criticisms that they point out are the biggest flaws of the film itself anyways. So they were picking up on it when it was even potentially a bigger problem than, than what we see on screen. Like, like you're right, like some of these other characters, they don't get serviced enough and... Maybe the action isn't punchy and exciting enough, and and these aliens are kind of dull, guys. Like, what's going on? Like, so it's like, the it, it is interesting to me that while yeah, we hear all of these stories all the time about studio interference, and that's kind of what messes up the creative mojo. Um, at least in this case, um, the, I think that uh, it could have potentially been maybe saved the film, but at, the, at that point, I don't know. Maybe it was just too far gone. There was just too many hands in the cookie jar or whatever and and it was it was too far gone but uh at least they were you know from a from a storytelling and a production standpoint they they kind of were on point in a lot of ways well and it is at that point that they are very close to where they have to start filming they they can't start really changing this stuff i'm frakes has been brought in as the director at this point too and and there's there i think you're right dana there are too many hands inside this cookie jar to try and rearrange so we can pull some things out and put it back in it just it's just not gonna work um one of the things that really stood out to me while reading the book is pillar talks about the fan reaction to Deep Space Nine specifically, and how it had directly influenced really the flow of Trek afterwards. Uh, that fans didn't like the conflict with the show and the characters. And, and and so, because that's not what they wanted when they created Voyager, if anybody ever wondered why the Maquis and the Federation all of a sudden become hunky-dory after like two episodes, it's because they thought fans didn't want conflict. And this is the thing that really stood out. Well, the UPN Um, was pushing them that way too, but yeah. So those two things that really creates the, the milieu we get and pillar wrote this right at the end of the book. He says, uh, the second second guess, uh, when much of the clutter arc about Picard w- really worrying about his life, uh, I'm not quoting here at this point, but uh, that was going to be something that was going to be really big in the film for Picard's journey. He says, wound up on the editing room floor. We lost most of Picard's personal journey. I wish I had started with a more substantial arc for Picard, one that would have withstood the loss of a scene or two. The clutter arc was written... And it was just too subtle to survive. Uh, I have to reiterate that based on the assembled film. I fully endorse the cuts that Jonathan and Rick in the studio decided to make. But a trip to the Fountain of Youth deserves a profound rebirth of some kind for the hero. And we didn't quite get there. That's a missed opportunity. One that bothers me a lot. I keep thinking back how the script might have changed if we had faded in to find Picard weary from two years of war, first with the Borg and now the Dominion, loss of many crew members fighting to protect the ideals of the Federation, and now he discovers that his own command is about to sacrifice those very ideals to steal the Baku planet. In that scenario, a peaceful world would have provided an immediate contrast to Picard's dark days of war this whole idea though this this kind of conflict and everything it it reminded me that fans and and in general we don't really necessarily know what's best for us most of the time 
we we really need to be shown. And I feel like if these guys had kind of had the guts to tell a truly Star Trek story, one that respected the canon, mainly what had happened in Deep Space Nine, you would have had a much stronger movie uh, and would have been able to still do the themes that Pillar really wanted to do and that Patrick wanted to do, that Rick liked. All of these people, they all liked all these themes. Uh, but when we watered and filtered it all through with Larry, as you kind of call it, the sausage maker, to make a film, it just got lost. And it brought me back to the beginning where it starts with story. And the story has to be very, very strong to withstand this kind of pressure to make a film. And that was one of the most interesting things about this book as we kind of wrap up uh, watching the progression of how things get cut and, and the compromises get made. And sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. Um, and if anything, I think Pillar's done a great job of allowing us to peek inside you know, behind the curtain, you know, don't look at that man behind the curtain, pay no attention to him. And it's exactly what Hollywood does to us and, and getting to see how great stories can kind of get watered down. And, you know, it just makes me even more appreciative to the people who somehow good films get made. Yeah, it's and it's not a matter of somebody wrote a memo and said, all right, I just woke up this morning, decided we should water this movie down. I mean, it's not <laughs> like that. It's like. It's like almost like unintentional Chinese water torture at times. Exactly. It's almost, you know, it's like little eddies and flows and things. And it's like somebody years ago, the old line about no one ever sets out to make a bad movie. You know, they just happen. But that is what's amazing about the book. And the final irony here, I mean, I'm just I was skimming through the, the PDF file here. It, there's tons of the original memos that are here. So if anybody, I mean, to me, it's a, it's this and, and Stephen Poe's, Stephen Poe Whitfield's original classic making of Star Trek book that, that I didn't realize at the time when I was a kid. It was like, oh, this is about Star Trek. And, and I, at the, you know, the subtext was you're soaking up how a TV show is made. And it hadn't changed a whole lot since the 60s. The positions are all still pretty much the same. And a best boy is still called a best boy and, you know, whatever. And, and this is almost like the best, even though Stephen wrote that book about the making of Voyager, in a way, it's very, you know, it's, it's very insightful and he has the same style, but it, it still doesn't hold a candle to, I think, the impact of Michael's book attempt here. Not attempt as in the writing, but the attempt as in getting it out to people. He's just got so many original memos and I was just looking at the stuff here about budget and you start getting into, okay, we can trim. If this happens here, all the practical things of money. And, and the sad thing, and just throwing this in on context, they were so proud, talking about the scope, they were so proud because the Baku village was going to be like the biggest Star Trek ever. And they went out to the west end of the valley and they built that whole village and they dammed up this creek and they resodded this grass and had this idyllic, you know, Shangri-La thing. And they were so proud of it. And that was the year the El Nino was so bad. And it like totally washed away the first one. And they had to go back out and build it again. But they were so high about thinking that they were going to have this huge outdoor set, bigger than Star Trek had ever, you know, you're talking about bigness. And, and some of those things, as this story on paper shifted around, that's the cheap part. They were so, you know, the expectations coming in were so high. And, and Donna Murphy had a Broadway background, and they had, um, I'm going blank on his name, what's his face? Is, is Rotho and F. Murray Abraham, yeah. Yeah, thank you. F. Murray Abraham. And, you know, the expectations were so big and high. But that all comes across in, in you know, the, the writing does take the lion's share of the actual book. And he kind of like fast forwards through this. And the other, aside from, 
I'm ripping his glasses off. Not ripping. Slowly taking his glasses off. Is the moment when they have the screening with the test audience. And up until that point, most of the studio heads are going, okay, okay, okay. Because at the time, it was like, hey, Rick, you know what you're doing. Look at Generations. Wow, look at First Contact. They, they weren't interfering so much as just giving notes because they had to. And there are some Trek fans among the suits. But at that point was when it when he when Michael's narrative writes about the screening was over, Sherry Lane, it was kinda like when the parent has the kids and they're out in public. It's like I can't yell at you here, get in the car. You know, that kind of moment. <laughs> Sherry Lansing had a get in the car moment with everybody and it's like, okay, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna find a half million to go out and shoot some effects, blah blah blah. And that whole ending scene after all the thing of ooh, let's let's be CGI and be pioneering. They didn't have time, and they went and they did an actual model of that collector ship, and they did real pyro and the whole thing of, you know, Picard running down the length of it and the Enterprise strafing it and all that was all done live with the live models, and and I got to go out and do a story on that. We had a communicator, but um, those qu- those fixes that almost rivaled, you know, that even outrivaled what they did with Generations at the last minute on the reshoot. So. He kind of zooms through that because it's not the writing process, but he does mention it. But that moment when <laughs> Sherry Lansing was like, okay, we're all going to go over and fix this kind of a moment. But even more than that, the whole idea that the book was done, and and you should mention, did not get published. He had a contract. Pocket Books had bought it. He was paid for it. He put all his heart and soul into it. And what I just found out today, and I, I remember this over the years, I thought it was Jonathan Dolgen who always got blamed for doing it. And it was not because of anything that was said. Michael is is an honest – and you guys can tell this, right? It's almost like he's naive, even as a Hollywood seasoned writer. He just, he just told the story point blank, the way we all do try to do in our Star Trek journalism. And it's not for anything that he wrote as a fact. The book got nixed from Dolgen's office because they just were they were just uncomfortable with the fact that they were exposing the process to this degree with all these memos and this is the way people write back and forth to each other and then I found out today my friend Paula Block clarified for me that it wasn't even Jonathan Dolgen that nixed it it was one of his staffers who thought he would be upset if it got out and showed the process showed the sausage making to this degree which just blew me away. So I learned something new today. <laughs> it just, it mirrors, it totally mirrors Berman thinking that Patrick wouldn't like the yes. That's crazy. I thought of that again when we were talking about that. It's like that, and I saw that all kinds of times. But anyway, the bottom short of the long and short of it is this book has been up, it was like online twice and got pulled down. Once by, um, well, I shouldn't, maybe shouldn't say, but once uh, Trek Corps got a hold of it and put it up and had this nice layout that I found today, actually. And then got yanked down at Sandra Pilch's request, Michael's widow. He died in 2005. And um, I know she and I talked for a long time about she's trying to get something and do something with the book. So I don't – because she wants to – do you guys – and I didn't mean to take over the show here. <laughs> Matthew, I'm sorry. But do you guys have a better feeling for the movie and or at least Michael Pillar's role and or reputation as a writer – uh, after reading this, oh, immensely, absolutely. Uh, to me, the book. One thing that I thought of when I was reading it was it. It made these people really feel real to me. And when I get online, not not that I did this much, but you know, when you get online and you criticize something or you see people criticizing things, now I'm thinking like I know this guy now through this book, and you know, 
it feels more personal and it, I, you know, I, I hate to see anybody, you know, the amount of work and heart and soul that went into writing this film and to see people dismiss it with one line, you know, Oh, insurrection, what a pile of garbage. And I'm just like, Oh no, you're not. No, like that might be your opinion, but you need more than that. (laughs) You can't just dismiss everything. And yeah, this book really made me feel like I know this guy. And it's not exactly like Michael's on a Gene Kuhn level, where he was gone so early that no one really knows him well unless you happen to, you know, got a rare tape recording or something because the tech was not there in the 60s. And, you know, mm-hmm. he died in 73. Because Michael's at, he's on a lot of documentaries. And if you watch the next gen Blu ray docs where Ira talks about, I mean, he, you know, the first reaction, he saved Next Generation and Future Star Trek. But he was a dick to the writing staff because he was trying to hold firm to stuff. And all the oldsters left, and his best friend, Ira, and and, and uh, Hans and Ricky uh, left, and he had to beg Ira to come back on DS9 and said it won't be the same thing. you know. And, and junior boy, wonder boy, Ron Moore is the only one who stays around, and he's rebuilding the staff on season. You know. But just to have Ira go back through that, and then it's, it's great vindication for me because – you know, Michael wrote Best of Both Worlds, and he brought all these writers, you know, Ron and Noreen and Renee and Brannon and, 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 and Brian Fuller and, you know, Mike Sussman and all these people into the fold and helped, was their first mentor as a writer. So I, this book, and I think Sandra feels the same way, it's like it's great for anybody that looks at Insurrection and goes, huh, yeah, it's a warmed over TV show, as you were saying. I think it's a great – I don't want to – not that we need to have a cause – but I think it's a great vindication for, uh, if nothing else, Michael is such a nice guy, as apart from the early kind of feeling there. He was such a nice guy just trying to be an honest writer and bow to all those wins because he didn't have the clout to sail into this, you know. He's not a Woody, he's not a Woody Allen, he's not a, even a J.J. Abrams. He's, he's a guy who worked in the franchise and had to listen to all the, you know, the, th- the fingers in the pie and the prevailing wins and all that. And he's just trying to do the best he can. And reading the book, I think that yeah, same thing I say about um, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Logan, on the Nemesis script. John Logan. Yeah, yeah, John Logan. They were really trying to do a good job and had a good script. It's Stuart Baird and the other end of it mucked a lot of that up. But um, anyway, Sandra wants this out to vindicate. She just wants to be in control of it, but she just wants she wants this out to uh, for more people to. Because hopefully, a lot of people will hear us talk about this tonight and get that. But it's a slow process of getting the word out. Well, hey, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can do this now, too. I mean, you could even just do a Kickstarter for this book and get somebody in to, to really create an, an, a really nice book. Like you said, the Trek Core file for a while had some great artwork with it, was laid out nicely so that you could do that here. I think this this book, if you can find it online, which you can, is is fantastic. It's, it's really worth reading because it will give you that inside look of what it's like to create a movie in this a franchise movie that a has a committee yeah. that you're yeah <laughs> exactly and i i think just like you said and, and dan you you as well after reading this i just feel bad for michael pillar because he had written a really great script in the beginning he had amazing ideas the guy knew star trek he had made a great star trek film and as it got watered down through the filters uh, you know, uh, through the Brita filter of, of Paramount. 
uh, it it just became something that he hadn't necessarily envisioned. And and, and, and I, it's not a monolithic thing. Again, we say Paramount. It was like everybody, all the different hands that had a hand mm-hmm. in the pie. Yep. I'm not mixing the metaphors. It's all the, and then and then it get, turns into budget, and then it turns into the ticking clock, and they're running out of time, and you know it's all those things. But yeah. um, like I said, nobody sets out to make a bad movie, and and he. Sketch, you know, he wanted it to be epic, and he had all the intentions in the world of what he wanted to do. Nobody argued with him. It was what everybody wanted. <laughs> Ratings for the book, what would you guys kind of uh, put your uh, stamp on on this book? What about you, Daniel? Do, is there a scale? Is there like a certain scale I have to go on here? Yeah, you know, let's let's um, let's not do the Trek FM ratings on the list. I want to I want to give people kind of a real thought process of, of what we really do think of of Michael's work here, and and and, and respect him in that one. Okay. Yeah. Honestly, it, it really did. Uh, t- as a person who doesn't concern myself very often with the the back end of of these entertainment that we see, which 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 is a shame. Uh, I, I've got to say it's eye-opening. It's an eye-opening experience to see someone who's like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is the job I'm hired to do. This is These are my goals I've set forth. And, like, to see that transform into something literally unrecognizable from those goals is really uh, interesting and eye-opening. And uh, for if nothing else, I think this is a fantastic read. Uh, just for that reason, just to see the creative process in a way that maybe a lot of people like me aren't familiar with. And uh, I, uh, you know, it doesn't make me appreciate the, the, the end result anymore. I don't, I'm not, uh, you know, Insurrection's my least favorite TNG film. And, uh, but, but it's a film, right? And this is from, this is just from the writer's perspective. And that's what makes it so interesting. It's like, uh, you know, and Larry said numerous times, nobody makes, nobody sets out to make a bad movie, and I'm sure that's true of everybody on that team. And it's just like, but at some point, there's just so much going on, or I don't, I don't know what it is. Uh, but it's so interesting to read and learn about that kind of stuff. Um, that I don't, you know, I certainly don't fault Michael Pillar for it because he clearly was going in, you know, thinking I'm going to make a great Star Trek film. This is going to be good. Everybody's going to love it. I'm going to make a great successor to Generations and First Contact. Uh, I thought it was a fascinating read. I can't recommend it highly enough. What about you, Dan? Uh, I think I'm going to have to echo a lot of what Daniel said there. Uh, just the background process of of first writing a movie and then seeing the process as it goes through these Brita filters, as you said, and it, it was eye-opening. It was incredible to see this um, evolution or devolution, I guess, of this film. And ultimately, I have to say, it was absolutely heartbreaking. I felt for Michael Pillar reading this book as he gets these notes and adjusts the script to fit them and then gets the studio's notes. And all through it, he's not angry he's not he doesn't come across as bitter or sad he just well okay this is the or job whiny yeah exactly this is the job that i have to do and i'm going to do it to the best of my abilities and i just was enraptured page after page reading this process and just knowing how it all turns out and knowing how heartbreaking this whole process must be i can't like I like Daniel said, I can't recommend this book enough. I absolutely enjoyed it cover to cover. 
virtual cover to cover, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I really came away from it with an appreciation for the craft and the work that Michael Piller had to do and what he was faced with um, putting this film together. And as someone who Insurrection isn't my favorite film, but I do enjoy it. I have rewatched it over the years. There are moments in it that I absolutely love and a lot of lines that now I know exactly who it was who wrote them. And he even points it out my absolute favorite little bit where, uh, where in, or in Picard says to Anisio, it must take centuries to learn that. And she says, it took us centuries to learn that it doesn't have to take centuries to learn. And I was just like, ah, oh, that's beautiful. And, you know, I can appreciate insurrection for what it was, but it could have been so much more. And that's what really breaks my heart. What about you, Larry? Well, I, I'll say it again, that if you're going to read two books about, as author of The Next Gen Companion, I love this because I was envious of Michael, because he's, he's throwing things in here as the kind of material that, whether I have it in my possession or I get to look at it and make notes, it's the kind of thing, along with like live interviews, that gets compressed into a behind-the-scenes book when you're doing like a companion. Or even if you can do a one-off book on one movie, you rarely get the chance to to spill the guts and let people read everybody's voice through memos. And it's why I love the original making Star Trek book I mentioned. And it's why I think this and getting back into it and thinking about it again here, this and the making of classic Star Trek um, are, are the two best because one's kind of sixties and it's TV. And this is a film and it's, it's late nineties, but there's so much that's still the same. You still have everybody wanting their say, depending on how much you stand up to it and you're negotiating and budgets and getting the thing done. And it's just the eye-opening nuts and bolts of making a show or a film, like you guys have been saying, is great. And so many people that maybe, about the time I feel like we've told everybody all we can say, then here comes a whole other few million fans and five or ten more years of new fandom and the JJ thing, and Blu-ray people, and, and no one knows this, and it's all fresh and people can still absorb it. And then, of course, it shines a light on when you look at any TV or film. You know, you've you're got an appreciation for it and you're doing it through your Star Trek. So, no, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. And um, it's almost like the book that has its own story, too, like I was trying to say. It, it's not out there. Sandra's trying to – I think Pocket still owns it technically, but she's trying to get control of it to do something with it rather than just having it kind of leaking around out there. But then on the other hand, having it kind of leaking there for those who go hunting for it. You gradually spread the word without waiting 50 years <laughs> about Michael and his situation in the, in the sauce. So I, uh, I, and I love this a lot. I was reading through here, and Marty Hornstein, who just died a couple years ago, was the line producer on all the next gen movies, who was the like budget guy. And they were going through talking about Quark. And when you take, a, when you take an organic story and when it turns into the money, it's not about, oh, we're cheap. It's just like, hey, here's the budget. We got to make some cuts. What are we going to do? And they're talking about back and forth. And again, it's a memo that's in here verbatim, and he goes through this, and then Michael's little ending to it, kind of the capper was it. He says, and I'll jump into the middle of it, but it's just funny. His little little paragraph at the end of this chapter about the budget things is, in the end, we cut the banquet in half. We cut out a few opticals from the dogfight between the shuttlecraft and the scout. We shortened the scene in the Sona brig. But for now, Cork, the double girls, and the llamas stayed in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's like you're talking about epic and man on a mountain with a fa- what? No, this is what it here it comes down to. The llamas can stay. I love, I love the llama subplot in this book. It's so fa- it's yeah. worth reading just for that reason. I think so. 
Oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, I got to say, you know, you guys have said it all, and this is a book that, for any Star Trek fan, I think it, it's worth reading. For me personally, um, I think Insurrection is actually my second favorite Next Generation film. And so I, I don't have the response that a lot of people do to it. And yet I know instinctively this could have been a much better film. And I knew that even before reading Michael's book. And, and like you said, Dan, reading it and, and then seeing what it could have been because of all Michael had poured into it, it was it, it is heartbreaking. And uh, it's a loss for Trek fans everywhere that we could have had a fantastic insurrection and then and, – and I would have said we could have had a fantastic Stardust and – I think, could you just imagine how much better Nemesis probably would have been? Because that movie would have completely, I think, been better and changed because I think this one would have done so much better. And it would have happened sooner. Uh, We might have gotten five Next Generation films instead of just four because of that as well. Um, So much would have changed if if, uh, the story had been different. So yes, with you guys cannot rake this highly enough uh and i'm so glad that that y'all joined us for that can i throw in one little thing here which is oh yeah inside the whole deal because i I was going to mention this it came up with my trekland trunk stuff all the insurrection things i have and it dawned on me that part of an insight on how mucked the writing process was on this was they didn't have a title until like late 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 in the game they did there was like no driving for you know all this indecision about well what is it gonna be and and for a long time it was just star trek ix you know, Roman numeral and it like the caps and everything just said sticks on them. And, and, um, anyway, it was just funny. And some of the crew stuff, the t-shirts, they didn't know. Here's a, oh, I, I can't show you guys. See, this is on the sleeve of the crew shirt. Oh, wow. They had come That's up. awesome. So, and then Star he Trek does, he has, IX. A, yeah, sticks. And, um, he does have a little bit here at the end talking about that. So after Stardust, which was that early version, they just, it was just Star Trek nine or sticks. And so they got down toward the end, and he said marketing wanted to call it Star Trek Revolution. Rick said there was only one problem. It wasn't about a revolution. (laughs) (laughs) He said his friend Alan Spencer uh, came up with Insurrection. Somebody else did too. At the end, there were four uh, four finalists, Star Trek High Treason, Star Trek Active Treason, Star Trek Rebellion, and Star Trek Insurrection. You know the winner. But see, even there, it's like an insight into – you know, there was no, it had the, the muddled, you know, I don't want to say mess, but the muddledness, how it came down to at the end. That they had to, they were throwing, you know, almost throwing darts at a board for the title. So, <laughs> leave you with that. Well, Larry, tell everybody where they can find you online and, and what's going on with you these days. Uh, well, LarryNemichek.com and the blog is TreklandBlog.com. I had a bunch of videos up, um, doing some videos to support Star Trek Continues Kickstarter, which they're over goal. And trying to do stretch goals, uh, which there's another – the, there'll probably be another week of that. Um, uh, I'm spokesman for Enterprise in Space, which I urge everybody to go over. Uh, we just announced the design winner. That's a nonprofit, uh, real space mission for five years later, not unmanned orbiter, to uh, put 100-plus student experiments aboard and some, some tech demo, aerospace tech demo. Um, and everybody can support it, not Kickstarter formally or Indiegogo, but just $20, 2 million people around the world globally, the same global audience for submitting the experiments, for the design competition, for the logo patch later. Um, 2 million people give $20, and it's there, although we'll have some corporate 
ransom things too. Um, and, and you can be a virtual crew member with your name on a chip and fly along with everything else that's going on the first real enterprise in space, which is a very cool fan came up with the idea and that they've got really uh, cool. retired NASA people and education component, a big appeal out rollout to schools. The two time NASA educator of the year is heading the uh, education process. So, um, so yeah, that, and then all my Trekland stuff. Thank you for the shout out for, uh, the Trekline oh, on yeah. speaker Trek CDs. Three, if, if if guys don't have that, they need to get that. Uh, the the talk with the guys from Deep Space Nine is fascinating. And those are just uh, chunks. I, those are like a fourth yeah. of the whole, you know, interview. Yeah. So are you are you going to ever release maybe the whole interview with uh, just maybe digitally? I'll I'll see. Or? I'm just trying to keep these okay. theme things for now. I mean, I've got okay. like four or five hundred hours of those things, and I'm trying to just get them digitized. You know. So anyway, and then Great. conventions. This is. Vegas and Comic Con and um, some conventions. Go to go to my site and I'm there. I'm, I think I'm going to get to go to the UK in uh, March. I think this is the first time I've said it out loud to anybody um, for two to three weeks, but at least one weekend. So uh, yeah, we're coming up on con season and gearing up for all that. And um, I hope I haven't forgot something. But, uh, yeah. Oh, in the Trekland trunk, I mentioned the stuff going up there. So some of my site stuff I'm getting rid of, and uh, that's on Facebook or Twitter and. Go there and you'll find something you like. It's odd, oddball. It's studio-ish and rarely retail. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Daniel, uh, tell everybody where they can can find you these days. Uh, they can find me uh, right here on the network on Earl Grey, where me and Philip and Darren love to talk TNG every week. So you can actually get th- these kinds of opinions all the time. In fact, we have a whole Insurrection episode, and I'm sure we'll have more. Um, uh, you can also find me personally on Twitter. Uh, my handle is 1UpDan, and that is the number one, not the word. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Wow, Matthew, what an excellent discussion with Larry and Daniel about fade in the making of Star Trek Insurrection. I got to tell you, that's one of the best conversations I've had. Anytime that you have Larry on, you know that it's going to be good. And getting to talk through this with him was just fantastic. You know, I know that he knew Michael and, and had a relationship with him. So it was great to be able to hear his perspective on everything. And one of the things I love about the book is that Michael makes you feel like you know him after you've read the book. And not many making of books really do that. And and that's what makes, I think, this one so special. Definitely. The focus on the writing uh, more than anything else, the fact that it was so specialized talking about his role in making this movie like you said, I, I really got inside his head and got to really see his thoughts and feelings about writing Star Trek Insurrection. It's been a blast talking about Fade In and Star Trek Insurrection today, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM here this past week. So let's take a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Really, really, really hope that if they do that, they make Chang the villain because, you know, Captain Chang instead of General Chang or whatever, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, that just seems like the perfect way to go. Earl Grey. All right, Riker, we're promoting you to captain. I mean, you uh, you killed the last captain. We usually don't reward that. That's usually not a policy, but in this case... Well, well to be fair, he had spent some time on a Klingon ship. The Orb. 
but the Federation and Bator as a member of the Federation would be helping rebuild Cardassia. And I could see like very much the relationship between the U.S. and Japan today. I could see the Federation and Cardassia having that kind of relationship moving forward. To the journey! Jimmy has a very distinct pain noise. Yeah, she you know kind what I'm of talking does. About? It sounds sort of like she's suffocating. Yeah, it sounds like she's suffocating and sometimes, and I'm going to keep it clean, not always in pain. The Ready Room. He is the best cosplayer ever because he's so buried himself in his part that we have no idea who this guy is outside of the impersonation of Tuvok. Exactly. He's the Christian Bale of the Delta Quadrant. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. If I'm not mistaken, in any upcoming episode of Next Generation, we don't see full-grown golden retrievers running around the decks of the Enterprise. And I'm also a little worried that Captain Picard has never played with puppies. Commentary, Trek stars. But you'd rather see Red in charge than him. Oh, yeah, totally. (laughs) Because you really want porn stash to go down. Yes, yes, you do. And that sentence out of context sounds really strange. Literary Treks. As great as Picard is and his Picard maneuver, uh, I don't think Picard straightening his shirt is going to help him uh, <laughs> when he's going up against the Riker maneuver. Fair enough, yeah. So. Axonar, the official podcast. The changes that we've made, the change to the nacelles and uh, several other aspects of these ships to make them distinct and, and not the same ships as uh, in, in Star Trek 2009. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. And if you're an Apple user, hit that subscribe button. What that does is it helps other people be able to find the show better when they search in iTunes. Also, star ratings and reviews do that for us. If you give us the opportunity to give us a star rating and review, not only will we give you a shout out on the show, but it'll help the show rise up in the iTunes ratings. And that really does help us out greatly. And it gives us a wider audience. It makes Trek FM bigger. Guess what, though? If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can download the mp3 file from my website and grab the rss link as well another way that you can help keep all of our shows coming to each week is to become a patron of the network on patreon if you visit patreon.com slash trek fm that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash trek fm you'll find our current goals and milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks that we have for you these perks include early access to content Exclusive content, you've got producer credits, seats on the content development team, and more. We cannot do this without you. We are a listener-supported network, and we really appreciate all that you do for us. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. If you want to contact us about the show, you can do that at trek.fm slash contact. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can do that on the sidebar on the show page or go to speedpipe.com. We're on Twitter at TrekFM, on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM, and then we have the listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook or go to the website at TrekFM and click Discussion on the menu bar. We'd like to thank Will Wynn, who's one of our associate producers. He's on Twitter at Will underscore Wynn, and of course, you can find him on the Babel Conference. 
He's also an associate producer on The Orb and Earl Grey, and he's Trek FM's contact coordinator. So if you have any ideas for a future show, you can email him at will.win at trekfm or just send him a tweet. We'd also like to thank Lisa Stevens for her support of the network and being an associate producer on Literary Treks. You can find her on Twitter at Flip18. And lastly, Kenneth Tripp, thank you so much for your support and being an associate producer here on Literary Treks as well. And before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps keep Literary Treks and all of our shows coming to each week. And our sponsor, of course, is Audible.com. Audible is a great way to read all the books you just don't have time for. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and we thank Audible for their support of Literary Treks and the network. Now, Dan, when you're not trying to figure out how you're going to save the Baku people from the Federation and the Romulans... Whenever you squeeze that in, where can we find you? Well, I got to tell you, that's uh, that takes up a lot of time. But when I'm not doing that, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Treklet Reviews on Twitter. On Facebook, I'm at facebook.com slash Treklet Reviews. My website, as I'm sensing you, you're getting the theme here, is www.treklet.com, where I review uh, both old and new Star Trek novels. And my new reviews of new novels are republished on trekcore.com. And Matthew, when you're not suffering from Klingon acne and definitely feeling aggressive tendencies, where can we find you? Whew, man, I'm glad you didn't catch me on one of those days. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on the 602 Club where we just pick a geeky topic each week and talk through that. We've done things like uh, Man of Steel, Indiana Jones, all the way to just to talking about comics. You can also find me on The Orb, where we talk about Deep Space Nine all the time. That's me and Christopher Jones, as well as my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.